Section 16. Filling the Void Left by IBM. Who just met Sting? A question I asked during an offsite. Getting settled in my new office was pretty much like each of my previous moves. Unpacked my boxes, placed my developer-issued books on my tall bookshelf, and began to set up my new Compaq LTE laptop. This was my first corporate-issued laptop. Trying to figure out what I was supposed to do was a bit weird. It wasn't like I could check in with my manager, or should I? Bill G. was generally free from ceremony and rather spartan in executive presence, including minimal staff. He had Julie G., who handled scheduling, travel, commercial and in coach, direct inbound calls, and everything else, literally. His small reception area had the same oak receiving area that was in the front of every building, and it was staffed by an administrative assistant, Debbie Stanley, Deb S., she handled all the calls from the switchboard, calls to 206-882-8080, requesting, connect me with Bill Gates, please, as well as all the inbound postal mail and packages, which would eventually get screened, but only later in my tenure. And then there was me. My title was technical assistant, but it became apparent I was really assistant for everything else. I kept his PCs running at home and in the office, mail connected, slides made, and anything else that kept us efficient, especially when we were on the road and it was just the two of us. Bill had not grown a dedicated staff, nor had any executives in the company, really, and instead leaned heavily on the team he was working with for any event, sales call, or other external work. If he was giving a speech about Windows, for example, the Windows Marketing Team and Developer Relations Group, DRG, would make the slides and iterate with him in a meeting before leaving for the event. I'd end up in most of these meetings. No sooner had I moved into my office than I was off to the Semiamu Golf Resort near the Canadian border for the management conference. Semiamu had become the site of all the official executive off-sites. Though few of, us, few of us knew anything about golf, Bill tried, Pete Higgins was really good, especially me. This was my first time at a fancy off-site with executives and my first opportunity to spend time with about 35 people in jobs that I had no familiarity with, sales, subsidiaries, corporate functions. I was told I was invited to attend because of my work on C++, but now attending as TA, I had the effect of setting me a bit apart and preparing me for how people would react differently to me. The format of this offsite was straightforward, and as I learned, the canonical Microsoft offsite format. Upon arrival, we had a small mixer that included the most basic of a matchmaker game. We each previously provided an interesting yet unknown bit of trivia about ourselves, and we matched trivia to people by meeting and talking. The fun tidbit we recalled for years was that one attendee had just met Sting. That was Bill G., and he was excited about it. The online version has a photo of the Semiamu Resort. During the mixer, I encountered the first time I had to introduce myself as Bill's TA. I wasn't sure how to answer what to do, what you do. Did I say, I'm Bill Gates' technical assistant, or I am on Bill G's staff, or maybe I work for Bill G. No matter what I seemed to come up with, I was always answered with a pause, and then I would be asked a follow-up question asking, what did I really do? Since I'd been on the job just a few weeks, my answer was always vague, but not on purpose. Even at this offsite, my fellow Microsofties were circumspect or even a bit put off by the role. It became awkward for me. For external use, I ordered business cards that simply said, technical assistant to the chairman, which turned out to mitigate things, believe it or not. It was saying Bill's name that got the attention, not the title. For Japan, I was told I must have a Japanese language card and it must have Bill's name on it. Internally, I quickly came to realize... People I was close, not close to always thought I was eavesdropping or something. To say the role was isolating would be true, 
But at the same time, I found myself in most every meeting with people 10 years and five stops above my actual pay grade. The online version has my Japanese name card. We then convened in the small auditorium at the resort. Bill G. and the new VP of Human Resources, Mike Murray, who had just moved from marketing to human resources. Mike was previously the legendary head of Mac marketing at Apple, who had led the launch and creation of the famous 1984 commercial. Mike explained that the offsite was basically the same offsite the executive staff had held, and the idea was to see if a select group of up-and-coming Microsoft softies would come up with better or different answers to the questions posed to executives. There were nine executives in attendance, which was about one-third of the worldwide executive staff at the time. There were only eight executives in the product and technology part of the company at all, and half of them were at the retreat. We were divided up into five teams of five, and after a brief discussion with the relevant vice president sponsor, we were given a challenge to resolve over the following day and a half. By design, none of us had firsthand knowledge of the topic at hand, and we were 120 miles north of Seattle, practically in Canada. There was no such thing as the internet and no Microsoft library. We could, however, call the library in Redmond to have articles and answers to questions faxed to us, but mostly we were just supposed to brainstorm and use the knowledge we already possessed to extrapolate or divine an answer. Some people, like me, seemed more stressed than others. It would be a few years until Andy Grove, then CEO of Intel, would write his seminal book on management, Only the Paranoid Survive, though he had written High Output Management years earlier. But long before that, or perhaps always, Bill G. was paranoid. It's no surprise, then, that his brief 30-minute introduction to the offsite was focused on all the ways everything at Microsoft might collapse. In hindsight, as good a management approach as that was, it was arguably a ludicrous proposition that embodied the deep conviction of paranoia that permeated our collective thinking. To think those that had been around for the 8-bit PC era and now struggling mini-computer market, technology companies simply disappearing like a a once active geyser at Yellowstone, was not a least bit paranoid. Still, in 1993, there were already more than 30 million computers running Windows, and over 27 million IBM-compatible PCs were shipped, compared to more than just 3 million Macs. That statistic obscures the fact that Microsoft was still making much more money for each Mac than for each PC, simply because of the dominance of Word and Excel on the Mac, compared to the nascent success of Microsoft apps on Windows, which was still dominated by customers running primarily MS-DOS apps like Lotus 123 and WordPerfect. Those numbers represented a growth of about 30% year over year, which had been going on for several years already. Microsoft was definitely not on the verge of collapse. Still, the first breakout topic Bill G. introduced was Doomsday, and that group was assigned the task of outlining a Doomsday scenario for how Microsoft's growth and or leadership could be attacked by competitors. Another topic, which would become increasingly important in my role as TA and later in office, was how Microsoft could move away from licensing perpetual software and become more of an annuity business. This would also be exceedingly relevant decades later in a world of software as a service or SaaS subscriptions. When I think about this topic, one I spent many more offsites trying to crack, I realized just how far ahead Bill's thinking was or admittedly how far back he was looking, since IBM had long since pioneered leasing computing resources rather than selling them. Owning software was an aberration in the beginning and middle of the PC era. It seemed inevitable that it would end, though many considered computer software to be the logical successor to music or VHS tapes, though without the rental. 
Our group's topic was how to fill the void left by the demise of IBM. It was 1993, and Lou Gerstner had not yet been named CEO, which was just a few weeks away. IBM was on the verge of insolvency. This was not something looked at from afar, from afar as IBM and Microsoft were linked by the Joint Development Agreement for OS2, and IBM remained a leading maker of PCs. The JDA would be wound down, but it would take some time to do so completely. Our group's executive sponsor was Brad Silverberg, who was leading the product development and marketing for Windows, including the new version under development, codenamed Chicago, which would become Windows 95 and later consume a huge amount of my attention as TA. Brad was relatively new to Microsoft, but joined at a senior level with a great deal of experience, having worked at Apple on the predecessor to Macintosh, Lisa, and then at my nemesis, Borland, but at least not on C++. I would be lucky to spend a lot of time with Brad over the next few years and fortunate to have learned from him early in my career, first as an assistant and then as a member of his team. After the remaining topics were introduced, we broke into groups. Our group could not have been less prepared for discussing the IBM enterprise business. We had a finance person who worked on the costs of software licenses, a product support services, PSS leader, the general manager of Microsoft Hong Kong, and a manager from the consumer software division, and a leader from Excel Marketing and a Microsoft manufacturing specialist who worked at the packaging plant north of campus. Not one of us in our group understood the IBM business at all that well. My personal experience with IBM was with, with the mainframe at Cornell, loading punch cards and changing the ribbon on the giant IBM printer while wearing arm-length rubber gloves. I sat next to the ladies that coded IBM reports when I worked at Mark Marietta during the summers after my first two years of college, where I learned some of the ins and outs of COBOL and RPG. Collectively, we knew three things. First, IBM was in dire straits in early 1993 and on the verge of bankruptcy. A rather stunning decline from where it had been just a few years earlier when I was working at Martin Marietta, and it was on the verge of $100 billion in revenue. Second, a few of us had read the bestseller Father, Son, and Company, My Life at IBM and Beyond by Thomas J. Watson Jr., a personal history of IBM. Third, we'd all heard the expression, nobody was ever fired for buying IBM. Our task was to stitch together into a coherent view of turning Microsoft into a reliable enterprise computing brand. We sent off email to the library for a briefer on the IBM business and received back a faxed annual report and write-ups from the financial analysts. We certainly learned a few things were bleak, but then we also received materials from industry analysts that were looking at IBM mainframes and topics like account management and how many MIPS per year IBM was selling. MIPS are a measure of CPU power used by IBM to measure sales. We had about 50 pages of material to go through. None of it seemed all that relevant to Microsoft products or sales efforts. We were up late making progress on the whole idea that Microsoft maintained an arm's length relationship with customers, whereas IBM had big account teams assigned to customers and in many cases, they worked on site full time, which just seemed crazy to us. Those that worked in the Microsoft field and finance had familiarity with these teams, and I realized the people in full suits in the hot Florida summer that occupied our hallways at Mark Marietta were those very account teams. In the introduction, Bill G. had pointed out that most of our sales still came from retail sales, literally people going to the store or ordering multiple copies from a reseller. While we had volume licensing, this is a program about to roll out and was developed by a member of our team. Today, when we talk about the idea of transitioning Microsoft to the enterprise business, most people can't believe that that was ever a thing. Microsoft is perceived to have been born into selling enterprise products. 
In reality, the company grew out of two other ways to sell software. Bill and Paul pioneered the idea of an OEM relationship with computer makers to include BASIC for a small fee and later MS-DOS. This proved incredibly profitable at relatively low prices, but with a very high penetration to each new computer sold. Second, products like Word and Excel were sold one copy at a time through retail sales outlets for what seemed like incredibly high prices, such as $495 for Word. There was even resistance to bulk discounts or site licenses because those clearly would end up with much less revenue from customers that use the product the most. While each sale was profitable, perhaps only 10% of new PCs owned legal copies of Microsoft applications. Microsoft was just figuring out the idea of how to sell software, not the hardware, to large businesses. Steve Ballmer moved to lead worldwide sales and was just beginning to build Microsoft efforts to be the colossus that it is today. He wasn't at the retreat, though driving, the driving force behind the transition was Windows NT, which was still months from RTM. The transition to building and selling enterprise products would occupy the next decade of Microsoft's evolution. This offsite was clearly my introduction to this transition, and by proxy, Bill was getting the executive staff broadly familiar with the topic. We concluded that to fill the void left by IBM, we needed to have account teams and build better customer relationships. We needed to de-risk the notion of the PC and PC software. We also needed to be in the networking business, which was dominated by Novell. Microsoft had a big project underway called Landman. Much of what we concluded seemed obvious in hindsight, but was, in a sense, Microsoft learning in real time. We pulled together a deck, and I ended up doing the typing, the person most closely resembling program manager at any offsite always made the slides, which surprisingly somehow meant I was going to lead the presentation. I was a bit intimidated. I made our group listen to me do a dry run late the night before. That was probably too much, especially since they had all been to a wine reception before. We were given only a few minutes to present, and so there were only about a dozen slides. You see what I did there? There were already way too many slides. I vividly recall using some of the now vintage PowerPoint clip art. When describing how demanding IT was, I used Demanding Guy, which was a cartoon of a bald man pounding his fist on a table. In describing of how IT thought of Microsoft, I used a cartoon of a mainframe computer reaching out and strangling someone. The online version has some of those vintage slides. We presented the idea that IBM was much better at articulating a vision for computing than Microsoft. Microsoft needed to present a more forward-looking vision. The irony was that everything the company talked about was mostly considered vaporware by the press and customers, since most of our products were perennially late and released with fewer features than we originally talked about. The idea of not over-promising was a core Mike Maples belief, which he instilled in apps and was most decidedly a pillar of my own value system. I would struggle with articulating a vision versus over-promising for my entire career. Bill G. sat in the front row, hunched over, elbows on knees, rocking back and forth. With every rock backward, his toes would lift up, and every rock forward, his heels would lift up. That was his trademark that I was growing accustomed to. It meant he was listening. Every once in a while, he grabbed his yellow pad and wrote something down with his felt-tip pen, usually circling or putting a box around whatever he wrote. Before we could even finish, he was asking me, or us, to explain how this elaborate plan would escape creating customer expectations we could not meet. IBM basically promised to deliver no matter the cost, and the best part about Microsoft's business was that everything we sold was sort of as is. We had no idea what was going on with the customer and had the margins to prove it. 
One could argue this was going to be a lesson that would take a decade or more to learn. Bill was at once concerned about setting higher customer expectations while also failing to realize and to provide a compelling vision. That was probably my first and most visceral experience of Bill taking something most think of as an, as an or and turning it into an and. The offside essentially wound down as teams presented. Throughout the two days, the other execs came and went. They all had clipboards and were taking notes. Years later, when I possessed a clipboard, I would learn that while the goal was to produce a presentation and enrich yourself, the execs were basically evaluating you on your performance in the group. Sneaky. Back at the office, I started to find a bit of a rhythm, though was still unsure of when to participate or not. Given my newly minted expertise, one of the strangest things I did when we got back to the office was to sit in on Bill's call when he and the newly appointed IBM CEO, Lou Gerstner, first talked. For Microsoft, this was a call to a big customer who made very good PCs that needed an operating system. For IBM, this was called to a former partner, now a supplier or vendor to the PC business, and a competitor with OS2. The industry was buzzing with how IBM should be broken up and sold off for parts. Conventional wisdom was that also pondering a non-technical outsider leading IBM was a risk. The most vivid memory I have is Bill articulating how the strength of scale IBM possessed was the reason not to break the company up. Gerstner, of course, went on to an incredibly successful run, though he did eventually spin off the PC business. The online version has the New York Times front page story on the IBM transition. I continued to learn how to work with Bill. More than anything, I was absorbing his focus on competitors.